Hello, everyone, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I learn about something I think is really cool. And, you know, you take a chance to learn something new, and maybe you'll think that's cool, too. Oh, most likely. I didn't mean to rhyme there. It's like you were a poet, and you didn't even know that was the case. <laughs> yes, I also enjoy Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, let's, okay, well, first of all, I am Melissa. And I am Everett. Yes. Now, now let's get the whole, I've made an email address speech out of the way. Let's do it. I said it last time, but again, I've made an email address because I would like to welcome any, um, like, you know, questions, comments, suggestions for episodes, corrections even. I mean, I would, I would suggest maybe, I would appreciate politeness, but I would love corrections because I am not an expert on anything. Generally, polite feedback, please. I just like to learn new things. Good. That's my thing. So my email, our email address, so sorry. It's okay. Uh, is teach me something for, now that's the numeral for, not yeah. the word, at gmail.com. Teach me something for at gmail.com. I'm not very original. They did not have one, two, or three, or, you know, no yeah. number so left, but that's, that's, what that's what we get. So um, as you've seen, as you've seen from the title... We're going to talk about mummies. That's right. And um, I wanted to try to start this new thing where I tell you kind of where I'm at. What do I know before I get into things? What are my biggest questions? Sure. That kind of shows you where I start my research and I just click on things from there kind of. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, and then, yeah, maybe Everett will also tell me what he knows about mummies. Mayhaps. And, and we'll go from there. So before I started writing this, I think the totality of my mummy knowledge came from the movie The Mummy. Oh. With, so Tom Cruise. No. The Brendan Fraser. What are you talking about? Tom, Tom Cruise, Cruise was in one, wasn't he? It came out when I was like an adult. Oh. An actual adult person. That's the last one I saw. And that's not even the original, obviously. And neither is Brendan Fraser. Which, of course. Which, you know, obviously the original is um, Boris Karloff, right? That's yeah, or Egypt. Is. Very old. The movie. (laughs) They've been doing that movie for thousands of years. (laughs) Um, Anyways, that's a bit of an exaggeration. I I think I heard some other things. I remember them saying something about scrambling the brains of the hot poker and pulling them out through the nose. I don't know if that's true or just one of those things they say. Um, I definitely had heard that as well because they didn't embalm well. Apparently. The brains. Yeah. Well, I know, but the hot poker... Anyways, that might not all be true. Sure. I learned on Sawbones at some point that rich white people ate mummies for some reason. I mean, why not? Um, and I did. I do think other cultures made mummies too. So I was curious about the differences in mummies around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, and a, like a big question I wanted to answer myself was the whole mummies curse and how that lore was started and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, anyways, so I started researching all these things, and then I'm everything I discovered. I kind of wanted to know more about. Yes. And I thought I could write five episodes with all this information. It's so cool. So that's the big reveal. Um, this is part one of five. <laughs> maybe six. So this this caught me by surprise. Okay. This, you know, intense interest. Because, as you know, that very rarely doesn't all the time happen to me. Not so, all the time. So I've managed to make it into just two parts. Okay. Just two. Um, but this is not the part that will be about the Egyptian mummies. Perfect. It was really in my mind the most logical organization is one episode being all about every other thing about mummies and then one being 
uh, more about yeah. just Egypt because there's Which is a the lot more, of history there. Yeah, and the pop culture and the well-known side, or well-known. Right, which was why this episode was actually almost more interesting to me. This is all a lot, if not all of this was brand new information for me. And so it was very cool. Great. So how about you teach me something about mummies I don't know about? I will, but first, you did not tell me what your current mummy knowledge is. Can you tell me if there's any mummy knowledge that you currently possess? <laughs> like, you know, the secrets or tricks to, you know, defending yourself against them. Uh, it depends on the on the game. But... Yeah, tell me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, you I have mean, to blow up mummies in Stardew Valley to kill them. That's after right. After you've killed them with your sword. Like, yeah. hit them with their sword, by it's, the way. And it's the only enemy in Stardew Valley that you have to basically kill twice. Yeah. So that makes sense, because they were already undead. Yeah, any, any mummy knowledge besides that? I mean... I had, at one point, a decent knowledge of, like, some of the different pharaohs that had become mummies, and, um, you know, I had also seen the Mummy movie. Right. With um, Tom Cruise. Yeah. Or Brendan Fraser, maybe? Yeah, I've made or, you watch that one. More whichever often. it may be. I don't want to watch that um, I had heard things about how, uh, like, the burial coffins in Egypt were actually more like family heirlooms, and they did this cool thing where... In times of scarcity, because wood was scarce there, they would actually just, like, find a relative that didn't need it anymore, throw them out, redecorate it, and put a new a new mummy inside. Yeah, that um, will possibly, if not, I already know, definitely come up in the next, uh, you know, part two, the mummies about Egypt. Right talk but um yeah that's a pretty that's a pretty cool fact when i when i learned that that was surprising Mm -hmm. um so for our non-egypt mummies we are going to start today with mummies from the canary islands i do have a question yeah there's been a lot of various um, preserved human remains in things like ice or nothing like that Mm. do those count as mummies Hmm. No, mummies would indicate that the flesh has been desiccated. Okay. Not just preserved. Not just preserved. Usually. Usually. But what I'm mostly focusing on is intentional mummification. Not unintentional. Right. There are, as we'll get to, examples called bog bodies, which have mummified somewhat naturally. But as we'll see... That one did not go unnoticed by people who then used them for the purpose of turning people into mummies, you know? So so we're mostly focused on intentional acts, even if they're more natural in occurrence. Right. Um, not someone accidentally freezing into some ice. Okay. Got it. Um, yeah, that's my focus here. Love it. Let's do it. So, the Canary Islands, do you know where those are? I did not. I had known that they were a part of Spain. Yeah. That was about all I had gotten. Uh, this might go bad poorly for me. Are they off the coast of Morocco, slightly south of Spain? Uh, they are very close to the coast of Morocco. Kind of on the west pretty side. Pretty far from Spain. Pretty so, far. Yeah. So, yes, they're Spanish territory just off the coast of Africa. Right. But North Africa on the west side... Like, if you were to go out the strait of Gibraltar to the west and then south, you would run into them not too far down, is my impression. We 
we are saying relatively, they're like 100 kilometers off the coast of Africa and 1,600 kilometers south yeah. of Spain. Okay. So that's 16 times farther. So they're very far from Spain. I get it. But I am picturing the right place. Yeah. Okay, great. So, yes, they're Spanish. Um, in Greek writings, they call them the Fortunate Isles or the Isles of the Blessed. And so they're kind of a mix of mythological place where only the purest heroes got to live that have proved themselves, whatever. Um, and then in reality, the ancient seafarers of the Mediterranean, um, wrote about them because they landed there for, for some rest or there is some manufacturing of Tyrian purple dye out of sea snails on this, ah. these islands. If I wonder how they familiar, make dye out of snails. Predatory sea snails. I wonder how that happens. You could go to our very first inaugural episode about Phoenicia and Carthage and all that fun stuff and learn about Tyrian purple dye made out of sea snails if you're so inclined and haven't already listened to it like many people. <laughs> I will have <laughs> to go back and do that. Nice. Um, so then the Europeans who later encountered these islands in the Middle Ages, um, found out that they were uninhabited, uh, unlike the other Atlantic arch- archipelagos they've gone to, um, sorry, inhabited, inhabited, oh, okay. not uninhabited. The other places were uninhabited. These ones they found were their habited. Here. They were inhabited. Good. Um, and the population had seemingly been isolated for centuries. Really? the interesting part. Okay. These people were called guanches. Sure. Maybe. <laughs> if I'm pronouncing it, probably not. But So then there's um, Tenerife, and it's the largest island in the Canary Islands. Okay. Um, it's the last island in the archipelago to be conquered by the Castilian Empire, or crown, let's just say. Yeah. Um, in, in about 1494, they started to take over this area before they became it was the last island to fall yeah so this was at the time of castile when they had a personal union with aragon but we're not spain yet got it keep going sure we still call them spain as in the spanish inquisition so i don't know if that's necessarily an important distinction no just for my own reference okay i've been learning more about Um, that history so just orienting myself i wrote this really dramatic line to say next okay good you interrupted me and now it's not going to sound dramatic let's pause for dramacy it wasn't the first confrontation the islanders had with europeans but it would be the last was good Dun, dun, dun. Dun. Anyways, um, so unfortunately, this is what happened is we've got the Spanish soldiers, the dawn of the Renaissance. They've got ships and swords and horseback and they come onto this island and the Guanches are from the Stone Age. Right. They have clubs and wear animal skins. Stones. Wooden stone. You know, like yeah. this is a wasn't hard for the Spanish, and it wasn't right. pretty for the indigenous peoples. Let's can... just say that. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah. So, um, with the participation of such experts on indigenous genocide as Christopher Columbus, they went on to win that battle pretty <laughs> heftily. Um, to be fair, Columbus was involved, but probably not... Oh, really, really involved. I just want to pick on him being an indigenous genocider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Spanish are good at that. So those that were not killed were then enslaved. And then 
they cultivated the islands, the Spanish cultivated the islands using these slaves, as well as other slaves that they went 100 kilometers east and kidnapped from Africa and brought them back to the island. Fun fact. This is not a fun fact. Terrible fact. This was like the direct inspiration for the transatlantic slave trade was the Spanish stealing these slaves from Africa and bringing them to the Canary Islands. So It was almost like a little trial run. Well, no. Just like many, many things. Someone else saw someone do something terrible and went, that's a wonderful idea for me to profit. I can make it even worse. Of course. Yeah. So, um, the Castilians, the conquering ones, fortunately, I guess, were very fascinated with the Guanches, like, death rituals. So they recorded so much in so, like, great detail about these funerary practices, which we'll now talk about. Um, the Guanches lived in caves on the island. Um, they're very important for the culture, especially for their mummies. So the oldest mummified remains of the Canary Islands are from the 3rd century CE, found on this main island, Tenerife. Um, and then later in this gorge in southern Tenerife, a cave was found. So this is 1764. Spanish infantry, infantry captain Luis Roman and uh, local priest and writer were all there. Um, described this cave as a wonderful pantheon has just been discovered so full of mummies that no less than a thousand were counted. Wow. And thus the tale of a thousand mummies was born. But, you know, we probably don't think there was actually a thousand. <laughs> um, the, the gorge that we think it was in is called the Ravine of the Dead for all the funerary caves that are in there. Um, most local archaeologists agree that that's the place. But it was never confirmed or found because there's no written coordinates. There was no written language for the Guanches. Um, it was all oral. Um, but, yeah, they think it's an exaggeration. that There are probably hundreds of mummies. Sure. But maybe not thousands. Okay. Well, in that one cave. But there were other caves along the gorge. So they found this really cool thing. Um, there's also rumors of a large cave that held the remains of their nine kings, or they, they call them menses. They're menses, uh, who rule the islands together in the pre-colonial times. Like, each little island would have their king, and then they'd have, you know, meetings of the nine kings, you know, kind of like how the Hawaiian Islands or, yeah. you know, those types of things were, were run. Um, but again, we, we don't really know because of nothing being written down. And the caves that we do know of were all looted long ago before real science was able to kind of get in there and start. So they think about by 1833, we know for sure that no mummies remained in place. Um, So the Guanches call these mummies hajos. And the Institute of Bioanthropology in Santa Cruz de Tenerife has about 30 of these hajos in their morgue. Um, found by just like shepherds, hikers, whoever. Um, so the question remains what happened to the thousands of mummies? Like, of course. And the institute experts think that it was a systematic plunder of the caves, you know, by rich Europeans. <laughs> so from the 16th to 18th centuries, as we're going to talk about, um, mummies were a huge lure for rich Europeans. Some of them was because they ate them, yes. But some, you know, were just, Put in a museum. Yeah, like collector's um, pieces and that type of thing. 
Yeah, put into someone's, like, you know, library, drawing room. They just have a mummy just for the status symbol of being, like, just have a mummy in your library while you have a drink with somebody kind of thing. Yeah. It was just a thing you did if you were rich. Um, others might have ended up at the bottom of the ocean uh, because once they started sailing away, the humidity might have started decomposing the mummies and then they just sure. tossed them overboard. Yeah. So they weren't well preserved. Um, so despite we do have one like completely intact guanche haho and the partial remains of dozens and dozens, um, we don't really know anything about their tombs or anything because they've never been found in place before. So it's really quite unfortunate. Um, but let's talk about how they made these mummies, the hahos. Um, merlado. Merlado? I don't know. That's the name of the process that they use to make or to preserve the bodies. So they clean the body with water and herbs. Um, they coated it with animal fat and then they rubbed it all over with some minerals and herbs, tree bark, and this resin from the dragon tree. Oh. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was blood red, this resin. Very interesting. Cool. Um, yeah. So that would halt decay. And then they would use volcanic ash and lapilli, um, where they'd stuff it basically in all their orifices. Yeah. Um, and sometimes even small incisions and stuff, you know, stuff it all around. And then they kind of laid it in the sun on the hot sand, piled hot sand around it. And then at night lit fires to smoke them. So, Yeah. So scientific examination in the 80s um, and the 90s a little bit showed that the bodies had had all their organs removed, which is called being eviscerated. Mm-hmm. So that's the same process as the Egyptian mummies, evisceration. Some had their abdominal and thoracic cavities packed with um, mud-like substance that had pine tree bark in it. Um, but others were stuffed with moss. There were several types of local plants inside. So they kind of just like stuffed them. With okay. things from nature. Yeah. Really good find, sure. Yeah. Um, and after the haho was was made and finished, the family of the deceased would wrap it in an animal hide, usually a goat hide. And the number of hide layers would correspond to that person's social standing. That seems to make sense. So up to 15 layers for the kings. Yeah. And then the haho would be carried by the family to one of the caves or these lava tubes. Created by the Tiadi volcano. Okay. Yeah. So it took 15 days only. Really? Out in the hot sand and smoke to prepare a haho compared to 70 for an Egyptian mummy. Yeah. Another big difference is that in the Canary Islands, women participated in the process, whereas in, in ancient Egypt, it was only men allowed to do anything like this. So the Guanches basically had males and females that worked as embalmers. The males made male mummies and the females made female mummies. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, but it wasn't a nice job at all. Um, it wasn't revered or respected or like the Guanches culture considered them to be unclean because of their work. So they were lower than executioners and butchers in the social hierarchy. Um, only prisoners were below really? embalmers. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So more recently, they've used some newer scientific techniques to study these hahos. Um, so one thing I found interesting was that uh, the guanches were probably really tall. Um, they, the imaging told them that the males were probably on average five foot seven, females five foot two, which you know for Stone Age peoples was that's pretty cool. Um, the thing that was really 
cool though about the origin of the Guanches people is we didn't really know where these indigenous people, you know, migrated from right. in the first place. They didn't was, just spring up there. Yeah, so. well, what was their origin? Because old literature literature spoke of tall Caucasian people. So then since then, people have been guessing, you know, the shipwrecked Basque sailors, Iberians, Celtics, maybe Vikings, you know, like. Sure. So they took CT scans of the intact Tahoe um, to examine it in detail and to compare it to CT scans of Egyptian mummies. Okay, cool. Um, they already had CT scans of Egyptian mummies at this point. Um, the scan actually debunked the hypothesis that Hahos had dehydrated naturally. Some people thought it wasn't done on purpose. Um, it debunked the theory that the Guanche mummification process was derived from the Egyptian process. It was clearly separate. Um, and in fact, the intact Guanche mummy was much better preserved than Egyptian mummies. Uh, the definition of its muscles could still be seen and the hands and feet were outlined in detail. Um, someone actually said it looked like a wooden sculpture of Christ. Oh, I, interesting. Okay, yeah. sure. But the coolest finding, I think, um, unlike the Egyptian mummies, and unlike what the scientists in the past had reported, and what I told you earlier, this intact Guanche mummy had not been eviscerated. Oh. Maybe they just thought they did because the last study was done in the 70s. And they just concluded that that was the truth. But when they did this imaging, they found all of its organs were perfectly intact, including the brain. And they thought this mixture of the minerals and the herbs, the pine bark, and that dragon tree resin halted bacterial decay. Okay, very cool. So that's cool. Um, so the intact Haho was a male, probably between 35 and 40 years old. He died around 800 to 900 years ago. Um, he, they think he was a member of the elite because of the condition of his feet, hands, teeth, that kind of thing. He had a spine which showed a, a um, bit of a dysmorphia, you know, just bend in a weird way. Anyways, yeah. that was common in North African populations. And his facial features also had a lot in common with African features. So they did a DNA sequence and they used, were able to use all the like pieces of 40 different hahos. So they had 41 different samples for this. Yeah. And they are sure now that the first inhabitants, these Guanche people, came from Maghreb, which is North Africa. Yeah. Which, I mean, like I said, it's really close to Africa. It shouldn't be surprising, but everyone just wanted there to be some cool white people there. Of course. And now we're scientifically sure that these people were from North Africa. And the Greeks and Romans called them Berbers, if you've heard that word before. Sure have. For barbarians. Oh, I was going to say the people who cut your hair. <laughs> no. Or, you know, give you a shave. But, you know, both in both cases they have a cool swirly pull. Well, the Greeks and Romans called them barbarians. But obviously that's not what they called themselves. They called themselves Numians for free men. Um, the Berbers were thought to be from, you know, like I said, Northwest Africa. But Pliny the Elder tells us there were populations there oh before <laughs> before even the Romans were a civilization. And there is some archaeological evidence that goes back to the 6th century BCE. So he, Pliny might be right about that one. That was okay. a weird thing to say. So, I mean, who knows? There could have been multiple migrations, but... Uh, well, but he didn't tell you what you eat them for, for to... 
you know. Well, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, Canary Island's pretty cool. Uh, I need to spend some more time looking into those. But the next type of mummies I do want to talk about are the bog mummy. Great. Because that's so interesting. And I did not know anything about this before I started this. So bog bodies or bog mummies are naturally occurring mummies. Okay. Um, they're quite interesting because of how well preserved they can be. Mm-hmm. So we can just learn an awful lot about them. Um, so, for example, the Tolland Man is probably the most famous bog body in the world. He was found in 1950 on Denmark's Jutland Peninsula. Maybe you say Jutland because it's Denmark. Okay. Jutland. Um, So he lived in the 5th century BCE. But he was... Well, if you look at the pictures and the people's accounts that have gone to see him, he's been described as still having his three-day beard and... People viewing him have the feeling that he'll just open up his eyes and start talking to them. Cool. Um, So over 500 Iron Age bog bodies and skeletons have been discovered in Denmark. That's just in Denmark. So this is between 800 BCE and 200 CE that we think that they've come from. Okay. We've got about 500 of these examples in Denmark. And that's not to say anything about the ones from Germany, the Netherlands, United Kingdom, Ireland. Ireland has a lot of mythology around bogs and bog bodies, bog fairies, a lot of fairy yeah. type stuff around sure. bogs. Um, that, again, could just be a whole whole episode. Of course. Um, Man is the oldest example and dates to the Bronze Age. So that's around 2000 BCE. Wow. That, quite we a ways back. He, that we think he went into the bog. Yeah. That would be 700 years before King Tut. Yeah. But his age makes him kind of an outlier. There's not like a lot that are that old or anything like that. Um, the radiocarbon dating says most are from between 500 BC and 100 CE. Um, so my question was then, what is up with that? How do bogs turn people into mummies was my first question. And like, how do they preserve them particularly so well? Yeah. So let's learn about bogs, something I did not think I'd be learning about when I started my mummy research. That's why I think it's cool. Of course. So well, bogs are a type of wetland. They are. Um, with acidic water and low nutrients. Uh, so low bacterial growth or no bacterial growth. Yeah. So there are very low oxygen levels in bog soil. Perfect. Which slows down decomposition of the dead plant matter mm-hmm. and such. But, you know, this dead plant matter is called peat. Yes, it You is. may have heard peat moss. I have. That's what this is. So mosses, like particularly we're talking about sphagnum moss, hmm. is it the, the peat moss moss. Um, are the Mosses are the most common plant life in a bog. Peat bogs are made of layers and layers of dead moss. Okay. So most of the bog mummies have remarkably well-preserved skin and hair and clothes and stomach contents because of the acidic, oxygen-poor conditions in these peat bogs. The best preserved bodies are all found in what's called a raised bog. Okay. So in a bog's life cycle, because a bog will change throughout its life the way it looks and acts due to how much moss is building up. This makes sense. It sure does, yeah. Yeah. So eventually peat is going to build up to a level where it makes a bit of a starts to make a, a bit of a mound. Okay. The water isn't getting up there anymore. Right. The water is only on the lower part. 
So the top part becomes wholly rain-fed, right? That's the only... It doesn't have groundwater access. Right. Rain, if you may not know... Comes from the sky. ...is acidic. Yeah. That too. (laughs) I'm glad you're here to help people out, but they might have known that one. Maybe. Uh, (laughs) There are some smart people out there. Uh, I believe in our listeners and their ability to know which direction rain comes from, at least. Good. That's a good first step. So rain is acidic. Mm -hmm. Acid rain. I mean, not all rain is technically acid rain, but... All of it is... It's acidic. Yes. And so the bog is going to continue to form peat. It's going to get more and more acidic. It's going to get more and more domed. It's going to get less minerals and less oxygen and more acid... Then you add in these low Northern European temperatures. Right. And you get like a refrigerator. Sure. And it's beautifully suited for preserving bodies. So after a body would be buried in there, of course, it doesn't really decompose much. The acid starts tanning the outside of the body. Right. And as the sphagnum moss dies... It releases a pectin-like carbohydrate that's called sphagnan. So because it's ex- it's acidic, sphagnan slowly, you know, halts all growth of bacteria around, you know, the body. But it steals, like it leaches the calcium from the body as well, pulls calcium out of it. So especially the bones, teeth. So bog bodies tend to look like rubber dolls, rubber dolls of a real person. Okay. Sure. And it... Would be kind of creepy, to be honest with you. Probably a little bit. Um, so the next logical question I feel is why are there so many bodies in the bogs in the first place? I know we said you naturally naturally occurring, but well, people but don't just accidentally fall there. into bogs when they die. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like my heart <laughs> just stumble into the bog and just fall down and die. Um, so bogs have been somewhat special to a lot of ancient cultures. Um, for Europeans, as far back as the Neolithic, Neolithic period, 6,000 years ago, bogs were resources, and they were also these ominous supernatural portals, basically. Um, so peat was valuable. Yeah. Denmark um, does not have a lot of trees. Okay. At least relative to the needs of people trying to burn the trees to heat their house. So you could burn the peat. Okay. And so it was very valuable. Um, or was also valuable from the mine or from the bog called bog iron. They used it to make tools oh, and, and weapons. I have heard of it before. I'm not really I familiar not. with it is though. I did not have time okay. to click on that link. Fine. There was a lot to get through. Um, most of Northern Europe does have this thick canopy of forest, um, but bogs were in areas where there was not. Right. A forest. And so they were the areas that were open to the heavens and the stars. And they had these magical will-o'-the-wisps, if you've heard that term, which is flickering ghostly lights that they were, you know, they're fairies, they're mm-hmm. supernatural beings. I mean, they totally weren't the effects of swamp gas or anything from say, rotting yeah. vegetables or methane. No, no. You know, that's, it was supernatural. It was, it was, what I'm trying to say is it seemed really um, mythical and fae and yeah. therefore people kind of just assumed it was 
Hey, if it quacks like a duck. Right. So Danish villagers would deposit gifts in the bog. Clothes and shoes and slaughtered animals and weapons and... People. People. <laughs> no, see, yeah, you're, no, exactly. I did write that. That yeah. was the next line on my script. I just knew it was coming. Right. So, again, though, Danish Iron Age cultures didn't have written records. So who knows what their religious beliefs were around this. So the one thing we're quite sure of is that most, if not all, of the bog bodies that we know about, we think they're victims of violence. Really? So, of course, there are probably some that did die naturally. Okay. There's a lot of disagreement, it seems, in the sources I'm finding, as well as people are very opinionated one way or the other about what's going on here. So some presented as all of them. And some are like pretty much all of them. And some are like most of them. Okay. So I'm going to go with many, if not most, of the bog bodies we have found visible um, marks of violence. Um, One theory to explain this is they were sacrificed. Um, Many think that the Tolland man is a definite example of sacrificial ritual killing. Um remembering that to the people who would have put him there, the bog was a special place. This is respectful, all those things. Um, It might have even been that they thought they were giving him some kind of immortality in the afterlife. You know, he thought that as well. It was an honor, you know, who knows? Who knows? Right? Who knows if it even was a sacrifice? And then if it was, how willing was the victim? We don't know any of these things. Of course. Um, so when this theory was first developed, they jumped right on it. They're like, yes, yes, this is definitely about sacrifice. I think people were just, you know, scientists are people too, you know, they, they thought that'd be super cool. So they just went with it. Um, so for a long time, scientists were kind of operating from that assumption without ever really proving that assumption. Yeah. Um, so a lot of stuff that you find when you're researching this kind of comes out from that conclusion, but the newer things really point out that we don't actually know. And here are some reasons that might not be true. Right. Some counter evidence right so but let's just talk about what if it was true okay we'll start there what if it was true well they thought they must have sacrificed simple people you know the the simple peasants peasants would be sacrificed we don't need them sacrifice the peasants okay this was the first they were just sure of it i don't know why um but now we think maybe it's the opposite maybe they're special or maybe at least they were treated special okay so New chemical analyses of two of the most famous Danish bog bodies, the Holdremose woman and the Harald Skjær woman, show that they actually traveled really long distances before their deaths. And in the Iron Age, that's unusual. And especially unusual if they were low status. Right. Yes. Um, And then... Even more, some of their clothing, we found, has definitely been made, was made in foreign lands. Okay. And was way more elaborate than they previously thought. So there's all this evidence that maybe they're a little special after all. So how did they figure that out? With some super cool science. Of course. So when peat harvesters began accidentally digging up bodies in the mid to late 1800s, many of them were discovered without clothing. So people were just like, ah, simple people. That is literally the only thing they had to go on, and they just they just made this assumption and ran with it. Of Anyways, Tolland Man, for instance, was found with a belt but no clothes on. And then about a decade ago, a scientist finally had the thought, 
It doesn't really make sense that he was naked, but with a belt. Yeah, I mean... I wonder if his clothes just dissolved. Oh, like, I don't know why... Pulling up his tar- torso. <laughs> yeah. Scientists know that people totally do that. Yeah. Wear belts to hold up their torsos. Mine would just fall right off. Um, so, this scientist, Dr. Karen Margarita Fry, decides to examine the Haldramos woman, who is a mummy discovered in 1879. Mm-hmm. So she was found wearing a checkered skirt and a scarf, both made of sheep's wool, and two leather capes. Hmm. So. Yeah, usually you need more than one. <laughs> you are the expert in leather capes. You would know. Exactly. The Holdermoe's woman is 2,300 years old. Wow. Okay. So using microscopes, Dr. Fry discovered tiny plant fibers stuck to her skin which she discovered were remnants of some ancient underwear. Okay. Um, later analysis revealed they were made of flax. Okay, yeah. Flax underwear. And then Dr. Fry performed a first-of-its-kind, like, strontium isotope analysis um, on the flax and on the wool. And what they found... Well, okay, so first let's talk about the strontium isotope thing. So isotopes are just, like, different varieties of an atom. Yeah. Yes, that's all people need to know, Mr. Chemistry. Sure. Close close enough. And all they need to do is analyze the ratio of one type to another type. Yes. All they have to do. That's how you analyze analyze isotopes. And if you would like Mm -hmm. to know more, Everett Mm -hmm. will take 30 seconds and tell you because he looks like he's in pain. (laughs) No. It's it's okay. You can keep going. It's not required. You just wasted your 30 seconds. I know. I did. Okay. So strontium is just naturally present everywhere in yes. nature. Yeah. Um, people and animals absorb it when they eat and drink. So you absorb the same proportions that are in the food and water where you live. That's correct. So in this way, we can figure out where people lived by what strontium is in them, basically. Just to make Everett happy, I'll throw in a detail. This specific test looks at the ratio of strontium-87 to strontium-86. Okay. Those numbers referring to... Why are you making that face at me? I'm trying to remember how many isotopes of strontium are naturally occurring, and I can't recall right now. Okay. So keep going. Then just tell people what the 87 and the 86 refer to, and then I'm sure you'll be happy. Oh. Well, it's the molecular weight. So... The number of... um, Electrons. Neutrons and protons combined. Great. Okay. So, we have pretty good, like, maps at this point for the strontium characteristics of different countries at different times. Yep. Um, So, all you have to do is... The hard part is getting the right sample that you need. And then once you get a good sample, you can compare it. Okay. So, the results show the plant fibers from the underwear grow on terrains that are geologically older than any found in Denmark. So we're talking typical uh, northern Scandinavia like Norway or Sweden. So it suggests that Holdermo's woman may have come from somewhere else or traveled somewhere else pretty far away. Okay. Okay. Dr. Fry also did an analysis of the strontium isotopes in her skin, um, and which was, like, really amazing because... Strontium will build up inside our bodies, mostly in your teeth and bones. Mm, but 
But when a body goes into bog, I feel like you realize the problem. Exactly. It leaches your teeth and bones and breaks them down. So strontium analysis is usually not possible on bog mummies. This would make sense. So Dr. Fry was able to pioneer this technique to test her skin instead. Cool. And it was very cool. Um, So that revealed that her body contained strontium like atoms from outside Denmark. Again. Um, another study published in 2009 showed us that um, the wool on her clothes were originally blue and red. They found a ridge in her finger they think was caused by a ring. Oh, okay. So dyed clothing and jewelry were signs of wealth. Yes. So what we've got to is that, A, these people in the bogs were not necessarily simple people. Right. B, she definitely traveled or lived other places. And C, this study actually showed the scientific community that there was much more travel and trade and interconnectedness through these Northern European peoples. Like, this is the study that, like, showed them that much more than they thought that people were moving around more and doing that kind of thing. Cool. Right. So, next, she's going to analyze the Harold Scar. I'm probably saying this terribly. Harold Scar woman who is 2,500 years old. So she wanted to run an astrontium analysis on the hair of this one. And since hair grows slowly, what you can do is analyze the strontium ratios at the root of someone's hair and then analyze at the end of their hair. To see if they've traveled. And compare those two things. Yeah, to see where they're at different points in their life. Cool. So it's really useful when they have long hair. And the Harold Scar woman had 50 centimeter long hair. 20 inches for all you freedom unit people. Um, But... The issue with hair is that it only contains a few parts per million of strontium. Yeah. Once you bury someone in a bog for a thousand years, it's almost just too contaminated. There's dust, microparticles, like there's almost no way to get it from the hair. So it took Dr. Fry three years. But again, she found a way to clean, uh, like a new technique for cleaning and extracting um, the hair, the strontium from the hair. Pioneered this. Again, very, very cool. Um, So she tested the enamel of the teeth and the hair. And it showed her that she traveled quite far before her death. The low strontium signature showed them it was probably a volcanic area, like in the middle of Germany or even over to the UK. Wow. So, and this was like really similar results to the Haldermose woman. So next, Dr. Fry is going to study the Tolland man. She's going to compare the strontium in his hair with the strontium in his femur. Okay. Like there was enough femur left to... Go for it. She must have made it work. Yeah. There was no comment on this part of it. Yeah. So there was, you know, small differences in the strontium ratios, which means, yes, he spent his final year in Denmark, but he probably moved around 35 kilometers in his final six months, which I know doesn't seem like a lot to you, but you own a car. Or or, or something like that, you know? (laughs) 35 kilometers is pretty significant for no reason, you know? And to have a reason to travel is usually a wealthy thing or a completely destitute thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So what Dr. Fry is wondering is if the sacrifice thing is real, perhaps the travel was part of it. Perhaps they send them somewhere. Perhaps there's a ritual or it's not the sacrifice thing after all. Um, there's just not really very many evidence or very much evidence. But I did say earlier they all had some visible signs of violence. Yeah. Um, strangled, hanged, stabbed, sliced, hit on the head, 
Some victims have been, quote, murdered more than once in several different ways. <laughs> Impressive. Yeah, there was, like, hanging marks and stabbing and, yeah, like, just, like, overkill sometimes. And the amount of it that's overkill and the amount of it that's violence is what makes some scientists be, like, kind of had to be a ritual. Like, why would this all be so violent? Like, yeah. I don't understand. Why would you stab someone in the throat and then strangle them? The clear answer is that it's just not the same for every bog body we find, right? Yeah. And trying to lump them in, it might not be great, but there's definitely a professor of archaeology that thinks Tolland Man, at least, was sacrificed to Nerthus, the Earth Mother, to ensure a good crop. Because of the mark on the leather on his throat and the way that that goddess's followers made marks on that, you know, there was there was some reasoning that he is proposing. Um, we do know the time of year, roughly, when most of the bodies went into the bogs because, like I said, the stomach contents get preserved. So they found barley, linseed, knotweed in their stomachs of some of them. Nothing like strawberries, blackberries, apples, rosehip, that type of thing. So basically, they didn't find the summer and autumn crops. Right. And they concluded they were killed in late winter or very early spring. And therefore, if it was a sacrifice thing, it was probably a fertility spring type of ritual. That type of type timing of would make sense. Yes, exactly. Again, it's just a theory. Maybe it was like executions. But then why put them in a bog? Because bogs are sacred, not a punishment. Maybe it was like a foreign person died in your lands. You don't know their practices, so you shove them in a bog. To preserve Maybe, them or whatever. Yeah, so there's there's some other um, there's some other ideas, but a lot, I think a lot of the people come down on that. There's got to be multiple sure. reasons here. Um, so moving on from bog bodies, I want to talk about the oldest mummies. Let's do that. So Chile's Chinchoro mummies are the oldest known intentionally created mummies in the world. Okay. Keep going. Okay. Um, they were, uh, the Chinchoro were a fishing people. And they lived on the coast of what's now southern Peru and northern Chile um, as far back as 9,000 years ago. So the Chinchoro mummies were first documented in 1917 by German archaeologist Max Ule, who found some of them on a beach. Oh. Radiocarbon dating showed us the mummies, well, eventually there was radiocarbon dating. They didn't date them for a very long time. But when they did, it showed us that they were more than 7,000 years old, which is more than 2,000 years older than Egyptian mummies. Yeah. Um, the Chinchoro's methods and approach to mummification were pretty different than that of the Egyptians. Uh, as I said, we're going to talk about the Egyptian mummies more next week. But just to compare the two styles, you probably know that the Egyptians used bandages. Yeah. And oil. Maybe you might know that. Oil yeah. and bandages. They didn't do anything like that for the tutorial mummies. Um, another big difference is in Egypt, elaborate mummification was really just for the rich, elite type of royal. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't know if it was royal just or elite or just royal. Type, yeah. of, type of thing, yeah. But for the Chinchoro, literally everyone, like fetuses sometimes, babies, really? boys, girls, like everyone got mummified if they could do it. It was it was what they did. Okay. It was respectful. It wasn't the same type of reasons that the Egyptians, well. Sure. Not necessarily the same. Um, the most famous Chinchero cemetery is in Chile, where... The remains of the black mummies were hidden for thousands of years. 
Okay. So black mummies were named because of the layer of black manganese that were rubbed on the outside of them. Okay. So they're definitely prepared still. Oh, they are super prepared. Ready? I'm going to tell you. So to create a black mummy, they would make small incisions. They would... Okay. Time out if you're pretty squeamish. Skip ahead 30 seconds. And go. Okay, so if you're not super squeamish, small incisions were made throughout the body. They would completely take off the skin. Okay. They would remove the organs in the brain. Sometimes the arms, legs, and head were just chopped off as well at this point, just to make stuffing things and and drying things a little easier. They would stuff it with hot coals to dry it out. Sure. When everything was dry, they filled it with plant fibers and animal hair and sticks to keep it all kind of straight and sturdy. And then they used reeds to sew the skin and, you know, if they chop other things off, everything back together. Mm -hmm. Um, Then they would attach this thick black hair, like a a toupee, and sew that to the top of the head. And then cover its face with kind of clay and like a mask with like eyes and mouth openings. Um, Then they would cover the body in white ash. Um, in the case of the black mummies, they would finish them by painting them with a black manganese, but other mummies that Chinchoro made were painted with things like other minerals, like ochre, iron oxide to give them red color. So they were usually either red or black for the Chinchoro mummies. Sure. So they played in Ottawa. (laughs) The Ottawa mummies? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Another place that has just like fascinating mummy culture though is Papua New Guinea. Cool. So I actually am going to reference this later, but if you're interested in this, National Geographic did this fascinating story on what I'm about to tell you. Because years and years before this happened in 2015, um, there was a, I forget if it was like one of the kind of anthropologists or photographer that kept going to these people and asking to see these rituals and be part of these rituals. And they kept being like, no, go away, outsider person. And after, like, a decade of bugging them, they finally were like, fine, come, like, take a picture or two, whatever. And by doing so, this person met a man who said, I'm going to get mummified when I die soon. And invited this photographer team and National Geographic to be part of the story of when he became a mummy. He's like, when I'm going to become a mummy, come back, because... Yeah, they were allowed to be in the village, but they were never like, going to be in this sacred room until this guy was like, yes, at my mummification, please come back and make a story on this. So okay. that's just a, I can't think, one of a kind. I can't think of anything like it, what kind of story that would be. And that was in um, 2015. So wow. if you're interested in that, uh, look that one up for National Geographic. But let me tell you a little bit about mummies in Papua New Guinea. Um, mummification was pretty widespread in Papua New Guinea and other uh, islands in the South Pacific there. Prominent definitely in the 19th and early 20th centuries, so not like super old, but um, basically they were finding a way to preserve the physical bodies. They really didn't want them underground because they didn't want them to be forgotten. But then, but then the Christians showed up, the missionaries came. And, you know, how they worked because of Jesus or something. They were like, don't do this. Of course. Because Jesus. So that was about maybe the 1950s when it was really like, 
started to not happen very much anymore. And a lot of the small villages and the small tribes kind of forgot the practice, which is really sad. Yeah. Um, but there are some that still do practice mummification to this day, like the Anga. Okay. So that's a tribe of about 45,000 people. And there is still some mummification there of their elders. But like I said with this story, this is the, the tribe that had this story go on. This specific guy that wanted National Geographic to capture his mummification, they didn't really do it in his village or whatever anymore. He knew of the practice because he was old. Okay. Was, the elders knew about it, but the young people were, you know, like, ew, it's not cool, and we're leaving, and yeah. I don't want to live in a jungle my whole life, and they, yeah. you know, so this guy, like, made his grandsons promise they were going to do it, and he taught them all up into his death how to make him into a mummy. Okay. And then they did. Anyways, I just find this so fascinating. So, the mummification process for the Anga is very different, again, to Egypt, or anything we've talked about because they mummify them sitting up. Oh. They like sit them up in almost like this swing or chair over a fire and just like smoke them constantly for three months. This like roaring fire going and they're like raised up over it on this platform, sit in a sitting position Um, because it's a jungle. Everything we've talked about so far, we are not in a jungle. Right. So it's very humid. How do you dry out something in the jungle? You need the smoke, right? You can't just use the sun. It's not going to no. work. So um, so it took a long time. Um, so the mummification is actually it's a really s- strict structure to it. This is once more a time where I will ask you to skip forward 30 seconds if you feel particularly squeamish. I'm going to tell you how it works, and it's probably ickier than the last one. Sure. All right, so the body is suspended over this fire. It starts to bloat. When it bloats, they poke it with sticks to drain it. Yeah. Yep. Um, They gently use a stick to widen the anus and let the organs fall out the bottom. Okay. Yep. But no part of this dead person is allowed to touch the ground. Oh. Fluids, organs, nothing. You to make sure it stays off the ground is very disrespectful, and it's like this taboo that's going to give you bad luck for your life. Okay. And the people mummifying the body cannot leave ever until it's done. And yes, I said three months. You did. Yeah. So, like I said, 2015 National Geographic was able to be present at one of these mummification ceremonies for an elder named Gemtasu. So, seven men, including Gemtasu's grandson, began this process. They smear white clay on their faces, which is a sign of grief. They are not permitted under these ceremony rules to drink any water. They could only drink sugarcane juice from bamboo. They can only eat food cooked in the fire that was smoking their Gematsu Mm -hmm. there, Mm -hmm. or Gemtasu, which... I would not enjoy that aspect. That sure. Mm. Um, when his the skin burns, they kind of like just use sticks to slightly scrape off that layer and down to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, over several weeks, it kind of swells and blackens and hardens, and the people performing the ritual must smear some of his fluids on themselves. That preserves his spirit. Okay. 
Um, they are also not allowed to wash themselves for the three months of the ceremony. Wow. There were seven of them in a small jungle hut with a smoking, burning person whose organs are falling out the bottom of him and they're smearing his fluids on them for three months. I need to shower afterwards. I... I have no comment. This is somebody else's culture and I don't want to be rude. I don't feel like this sounds pleasant, but I don't think it's supposed to be pleasant. Yeah. Right. So then after the smoking's done, they put red clay all over the body. And then you've got this body that's mummified in a sitting position. Mm -hmm. You throw it over your back, strap to a chair and take it to this rock cliff and bring it to this shrine, like a circle of mummies. Yeah. And they can go up there and, and bring them back down if they ever want to involve them in something. Okay. Or people can hike up there and visit the shrine and consult with their ancestors. So for the Anga, the most important part of this is to keep the face intact. Okay. They don't have photographs and anything like right. that. They want to preserve the image. Um, their face kind of has this immortality concept in their culture. Um, they, they also believe that the spirits roam free during the day and they're going to return to those mummified bodies at night. And if they can't see the face, they won't know which one is their own body and they'll have to wander eternally. Right. So that's why the face is so important. And like I said, I do think this was a pretty cool National Geographic article. Yeah. If you guys want to look at mummies of Papua New Guinea, very cool. So the last mummy fact I have time to share today is both interesting and unsettling. Of course. Um, there are people who mummify themselves. That's intense. Yeah. So this is a Buddhist monk extremist type thing. Not a mainstream Buddhist monk thing, but you know, like setting yourself on fire. Yeah. It's pretty intense, but it seems to be confined as a practice to the Buddhist monks of Japan, China, and India. Some have believed it would give them special powers. Some thought they would just wake up one day like they were sleeping. Okay. Um, so, when you're a monk hoping to go through this process, time is not an issue for you. You are a monk. This is your goal. You spend three years eating nuts and seeds only. Okay. Then after those three years, you switch to only bark and roots for three more years. The whole goal here is to deplete your body of all fat so that when you die, the bacteria would have less food to eat. That was That's their theory. I'm not saying any of this is correct. This is the logic behind it mm -hmm. um this diet was kind of created pioneered by great master buddhist kakai who was said to have quote forsworn all cereal grains before self-mummifying himself which doesn't make sense in a stone cave um so after you complete your six-year diet mm -hmm. then you drink a poisonous tea which means you would vomit up all your fluid okay um once again, they thought if we had no water in my body and if there was poison inside my body, maybe the bacteria won't eat me so much. Yeah, okay. Um, at 
not really, but anyways. So then when they feel the end is near, they move into a tomb um, that is mostly closed except for an air tube. And they take in a bell. Okay. Then they meditate. Every day. I don't know how they know it's another day. But every day they ring the bell. And when the bell doesn't ring anymore, the whoever is on the outside takes out the air tube and completely seals the tomb. Makes sense. Does it, though? Well, in terms of creating In terms of tomb. how would you go? For- <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, despite all that work, this doesn't necessarily work that well. Okay. As a process for mummifying yourself. Appears that most monks that have tried this have failed and their bodies have decomposed. But, I mean, there's at least 24 that we know of that were successful at making themselves a mummy. This practice has apparently existed since at least the 12th century. Okay. Hasn't really been examined scientifically too, too much, so we might find some more. But to be clear, Buddhist religious leaders definitely discourage this. They don't, they don't want people doing it. Um, fun fact. I don't know if this one's fun or not. Fact. In 2015, a self-mummified Buddhist monk was discovered in a Buddha statue in China. Inside oh. of one, yes. That's kind of cool. Is it? Well, kind of creepy. <laughs> kind of fun. I don't know how to feel about this. Semi-fun fact. Is it? Yeah, I, I really don't know how to feel about this. Um, so, I would love to keep talking about mummies. Of course. But this is why I made a second part. And I want it again, I want to say it's going to be all about the Egyptian mummies. But now that I think about how much I didn't have time for today, I'm thinking it would be like half Egyptian mummies and then half like eating mummies and studying mummies by making mummies and the funeral homes that are now offering it as a service. Because we live in interesting times. And there is a lot to say. So, uh, once again, email address is teachmesomething4, numeral 4, at gmail.com. Um, and I want to say thank you so much to everybody for listening to Teach Me Something. My name is Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Mm-hmm.